0: Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall. Because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them would be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord.
1: I would say that um, in my experience, many people come to church in order to answer the practical questions of life. It's how does this Christian faith affect my work, my marriage, what I do with my money, my relationships, the decisions that I'm going to make. And the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been looking at the past two months, is Jesus giving us very practical theology. It's just that sort of wisdom and insight. We've looked at it over the past few weeks as Jesus has talked about how we're called to love people that are hard to love, to forgive people who have offended us, how we're supposed to go through life without worry and anxiety, how we're supposed to deal with our own judgmentalness and instead to judge well. In many ways, the Sermon on the Mount is answering that sort of question that many people come to church looking for. It's the so what of Christianity. It's how do you apply this whole Jesus thing to the life that I am actually living? But in many ways, we fall short if we simply come for moral guidance, for wisdom and advice. That's what you have Oprah for. You come to Christianity for something a little bit different. And Jesus gets at it at the end of this Sermon on the Mount because what he's getting at is that what you do and how you do it is born from what you believe to be true. Our thinking affects our doing. And Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with some very hard truth and suggests that the root of belief is in what he's saying And out of that grows the kind of life that we are looking for. Throughout this last section that we're looking at, Jesus is talking about two opposite directions. And he uses four examples to describe the two opposite directions. The first is about the way, the second is a tree and its fruit, a third is about a relationship, and the fourth, a foundation to a house. The way I want to break it apart this morning is looking at how Jesus gives us an invitation, a warning, a word of an instruction, and the insight that unlocks it all. An invitation, a warning, a word of instruction, and the insight that unlocks it all. The first thing we see is the invitation. And that's actually right here at the beginning of the section that Jesus gives us that's closing out the whole Sermon on the Mount. We read, as Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So here we have the two opposites. It's pretty obvious. The wide and easy way is the way to destruction. The narrow and hard way is the way to life. And in some ways, it's as if you're standing as the reader in the perspective of I'm right here and I see one narrow hard road over there and in the opposite direction is the wide and easy way. Jesus says many, many are on the wide and easy way. And actually, if you're going to take it a step further, the assumption behind Jesus' example here is that we are by nature on that wide and easy way. That's the way we tend unless we choose otherwise. Now, in some way, to to kind of understand how this needs to challenge us, um, I don't know if you're the kind of person who sweats details. I am not. And so if I don't have clear instructions on what I'm supposed to do, or if I'm going to a new place and I'm not sure what it's supposed to look like, I actually don't get worried about it. And so, as an example, a few weeks ago, I was going with, um, with my son and a whole class of kids to Camp Highroads. The sixth grade classes at Louise Archer Elementary went to Camp High for four days, three nights, and I was one of the counselors who had a cabin full of boys. At the pre-meeting for the parents, it was amazing the detailed questions that parents were asking. Meanwhile, I just thought, I'll show up and figure it out. I figured once I get there, I'll see what everyone else is doing. I'll figure out where the coffee is. I'll grasp where the bathrooms are and what the sleeping arrangements are going to look like. Now, I do that with a lot of things in life. I just figure out that I'll be in the mean. I'll be in the average. And so if I enter a space, I look and see what everyone else is doing. In some ways, it's how I drive on the highway, right? There's a speed limit, but then there's staying with traffic. Spiritually speaking, many of us assume the same sort of thing. If I just stay somewhere in the mean, if I just look and see what everyone else is doing, and I'm on the average, then it's got to be okay, right? I mean, sure, I'm not a saint, but I'm also not, you know, the worst. So long as I'm with the crowd, it should be safe. And Jesus is saying, if you're with the crowd, it's destruction. It's destruction. The spiritual middle is not a good place to be. He says, narrow is the gate. Hard is the way, the road. The implication is you actually must turn aside from the direction you're naturally on. You must choose to enter the narrow gate. By nature, you are going this direction with the crowds towards destruction You must see and choose to enter by the narrow gate. It's a deliberate, active, volitional choice of the will to turn away from the way that you're on. You have to opt in. This is Jesus' invitation. Come, enter the narrow gate. The path is hard, but this is the way to life. First, we get Jesus' invitation. The second thing we get is Jesus' warning. The warning begins with false prophets and moves to fruit and trees. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The false prophets claim to understand Jesus. They claim to represent the faith, but their life shows that they don't. And he goes on to use fruit, the metaphor of fruit from a tree, and says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and diseased trees bear bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he's talking about fruit and trees as a way to recognize the false. False. He says, You're gonna know if somebody is false, you're gonna know if you yourself are false by looking at the fruit. So bad trees are diseased and don't produce the fruit that they're supposed to fruit that they're supposed to produce. But it also he uses a mixed metaphor here because he talks about fruit in another way, not just about having a diseased tree, but he also talks about how certain types of trees or bushes produce certain sorts of things. A thorn bush does not produce grapes. Thistles don't produce figs. You will recognize the type of tree by the fruit. Now, this is a common metaphor in the the New Testament for the life that we are called to live as followers of Christ. A Christian produces the sort of fruit that testifies to who he or she is. So when Paul says the fruit of the spirit, that you're supposed to walk in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, we've got to think about it in the right order. And that's what, Paul, what, that's what Jesus is getting at here. It, let me put it this way. Uh, an oak tree does not try really hard to make apples in order to become an apple tree. An apple tree makes apples because it's an apple tree. And Jesus is saying, the type of fruit that you see indicates the type of tree that it is. I am, a, I am not an arborist or a horticulturalist. Most trees and vegetation are for eating or burning, as far as I can tell, um, A few years ago, we moved into our house and up against the fence line was a strange, bushy tree that I didn't know what it was. And it was in November, so the leaves had fallen. I had no idea what it was. Well, then when spring rolled around, this leaf started growing on it and that did not help me in any way. I I had no idea what this was. It wasn't until August that something started growing on it and I realized what it was. So this leaf was used by the first tailor in history. And the fruit that was produced on it was a fig. So I found out I had a fig tree. Now, what I had in my backyard was not some wild bush that decided, oh, if I start producing some figs, then everyone will think I'm a fig tree. No, it actually was a fig tree. And so it produced figs. Jesus is saying, if you are actually a child of God, you will produce the fruit of the children of God, the fruit of the Spirit. Your life will be marked by it. And if you're not producing, the only thing left is to be cut down and thrown into the fire. An invitation, a warning, and then thirdly, an instruction. Jesus says, build your house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But the opposite is also true. If you hear my words but don't do them, you are like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. When the storms come, that house fell and great was the fall of that house. Jesus is suggesting that the storms of life expose the construction of our life's house. Storms reveal the wisdom or foolishness of our life. The storms of life reveal what actually really matters to us deep down in. When challenges in life come, they remind us of what really lasts and what should matter in our life. You know, marriage is one of those great storms in life. In and of itself, marriage can be the storm in your life. Marriage can show what your foundation is built on as a person. If you've been dating somebody and then you get married to them and all of a sudden you find they have anger problems, it's because the marriage has created the wind and the waves in that person's life, in your spouse's life. And it might show that their foundation is actually trying to control everything. The reason why they're angry is because they've lived their whole life trying to control who they are, their environment, their security, everything about their lives. And here's the thing, if control is your foundation, any other human being, and especially somebody you're married to, is going to challenge your control. It challenges your control of your time, of your money, of the value that you place on yourself, of all your hopes and dreams in life, because now there's somebody else who's going to have a share in them. When control is the foundation of your life, your spouse's requests feel like demands. Their suggestions must be an attack on who you are. The foundation, if it's not Christ, will be revealed. You even see this when people who have been married for 25 or 30 years start to grow apart because what you end up seeing is that their life was built on their kids, the success and happiness of their children. And when their kids are gone, what do they have left together? The marriage is done. Jesus asks us with this example, what is your life built on? What will the storms in your life show? And I have to say, many of us don't actually know. We have no idea what our lives are built on. But Jesus is also clear here that if you don't know what your life is built on, if you haven't made a choice for him, then it's built on sand. You're on the wide road. Jesus says, build on me, bear my fruit, turn towards my gate, and walk on my road. How do we do it? Well, there's two insights that I want us to see. These are the insights that I think unlock it all in this whole passage. The first insight comes from the crowds, Notice at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was done speaking, it says the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The crowds were astonished, continually astonished. Why? Because Jesus was so different than the other rabbis. Jesus comes in and starts teaching them. Rabbis, which they thought Jesus was just a rabbi, rabbis always quoted tradition or other rabbis or the Old Testament. Jesus comes in and claims to be on par with the Old Testament. He says, you've heard it said in the scriptures, but I say, my words are scripture. My words are truth. My words are like God's words. Jesus says, those who will enter the kingdom of heaven are those who do the will of my Father. And a few verses later, he says, those whose house will last are those who do what I say. In these very sections we're looking at, Jesus is saying, doing the will of God the Father and doing what I say are the same thing. Jesus is saying, build your life on me. No Jew had ever said something like that. That was the sort of thing reserved for God the Father. But that's the challenge of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, the difference between the two ways, destruction and life, lasting and falling, are you must follow, do, and build on me, on Jesus alone. And at this point, most of us have a, have a problem because what Jesus is getting at at the end of this, this passage, at the Sermon on the Mount, is, sounds very exclusive and very arrogant. Most of us would say, Jesus, you can't really go around saying that you're the only way. We all know that there's more than one way. Most of us today, at least the natural reaction in our culture, is that truth is somewhat subjective. And so there's the common metaphor for religion and philosophies and ideology, which is really, it's one big mountain, and everyone's taking a different road, but all roads lead to the top. So long as you respect other people's way, and you try really hard on your own, you'll get there. Another way religion is viewed is by the parable that was told in India, about the blind men and the elephant. You see, there were three blind men walking along. And the three blind men all came upon something. And the first one was reaching around, feeling what, he was, what was in front of him. And he said, it seems like we've come to a forest. There's a tree, a couple of trees here. And the next man said, no, 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 it's not a forest. It's, it's a wall. It's a tall and high and wide wall. And the next man said, No, it's moving around. And it seems to have a, it, I think it's a, a snake that we've come across, a big snake. And they began to argue as to who was right. Was it a snake, or a wall, or a forest that they had come upon? And it was somebody from the outside who could see, who said, Guys, you've come across an elephant. You're just describing him from your perspective, but you're all talking about the same thing. The legs, the body, the trunk. But you can only see one part of it. That's how our culture assumes that religion, philosophies, ideologies, life directions go. No one can know for sure. You're all just describing the elephant, right? Jesus, that's just one side, But of course, even the whole metaphor of the elephant, the parable there of the blind men and the elephant isn't in itself an exclusive claim. Because to say that all other paths are just partial views is to suggest that you or I have the total view. It's to say that we can see the elephant even though all those blind people can't. Jesus makes the astonishing claim. He claims to be equal to God. And it astonishes the crowds that somebody would do that. And it astonishes us because he claims to be the only God, the only way, the only foundation, the only source of life. The second insight we get for how to live the life that Jesus is calling us to comes in the middle section of this whole passage. And it's, it's the part that I find the most challenging. When Jesus says, it, it's not just get on the right road or bear the right fruit, but then he, he does this one that seems to contradict the rest of it. When he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. For on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, think about what Jesus is suggesting here. So the the people who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, that that is a, uh, when you double up a name, it's a Hebraism. It's a Jewish way of saying that you're very intense about something. And to say, Lord, Lord, was to say that Jesus is God. So these people are coming around saying, Jesus, I believe you are Lord. I trust that you are God. They seem to have a firm knowledge of the truth. And then in verse 22, it says that they're prophesying and they're uh, casting out demons and they're doing good deeds. They're doing the religious and good works that Jesus seemed to be talking about when he said, bear the fruit. And yet, what does Jesus say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. How can that be? How can it be that as he's been around here instructing us and warning us about what to do and how to build our lives, it seems like these people are doing the right sorts of things. They seemed to be doing what Jesus said. Why does he say, I never knew you? The word "know" there gives us a little bit of the insight. Jesus says, it's not that you don't acknowledge that I am the Lord, which is true. It's not that your life isn't good. It is. It's that I don't know you the Greek word that's used there comes from the stem ginosko. Ginosko is different than another choice that could have been made, which is oida, okay? There's two ways to say no in Greek. One is ginosko, the other is oida. Jesus says, you do not, I do not ginosko you. Oida is knowledge about facts. You know about something, you know how to do something. Gnosko is understanding. It's personal and intimate. It's insight. It's relational. So you oida math. You gnosko your best friend. These people have no relationship with Jesus. In other words, you can Oida Jesus and not Gnosko him. Similar to how you might say, I know the president. You might know about the president. You might be for him and his policies. You might have voted for him. You might have gotten involved in his campaign and even try to implement some of the things he's trying to do. But you're not friends with the president, there's no relationship between you and the president. You oida him, you don't gnosko him. Jesus is saying that the one thing that is necessary, the one key that unlocks all of this, the one element that is essential to life in me and life lasting is that you must have a relationship with me. You must go further and deeper and more personal with your Christianity. What does this look like? It looks like living with a constant awareness of who Jesus is. And in many ways, I think it takes us to, we need to take a step further in. Many of us who've grown up as Christians or been in the church a long time have a lot of head knowledge about who Jesus is, but we've divorced it from relating to Jesus in a very personal way. Uh, there's a small group of men that, are, that I'm meeting with on Monday nights as part of one of the small groups in the church, and we're doing a book called Beautiful Outlaw by John Eldridge. And it's looking at the person of Jesus in his full humanity. And one of the things that's great about this book is that it talks about Jesus as if you're talking about a good friend. It talks about how courageous and bold Jesus was. And I remember reading the chapter and discussing it and thinking about friends of mine that I'd always wanted to be around. There was always a kid that was more risk taking and bold and always made me a bit nervous, but I wanted to be around him. In middle school it was Brian, in high school it was Steve. And it's that guy that you just want to be around because you know they're gonna do something a little bit on edge. That was Jesus. Jesus, it said in this book, is also humorous. He talks about the the John Eldridge talks about the different ways that Jesus made people laugh and did things that were ironic and was poking fun at the disciples. Jesus is like that best friend that when you're together, you can't stop laughing with. But the book also talked about Jesus being frustrated and exhausted and lonely just like us. You need to have a relationship with Jesus. But Jesus is someone you can relate to. What does Jesus say to those who have no relationship with him? He says, Depart from me. That means that judgment is to depart from Jesus. Think about this, all the metaphors that Jesus has used for final judgment, the road to destruction, being cut down and thrown into the fire, the complete collapse of the house, all of these are metaphors for the true greatest nightmare, which is to be apart from Jesus. Hell, hell is to be apart from Jesus forever. This also means the destination that we're after in the road of life. The fruit that we're looking to produce in our life. The house that we want to dwell in by our life. All that we've been looking for, seeking after, building upon, is meant to be found in being with Jesus. So, it's not the ideal husband or being in the end circle, or the perfect job, or getting into the top college, or the dream house, it's actually Jesus that we're after. Jesus is the beauty we long for, the comfort we're looking for, the security we're trying to find, the hope that we're building our life upon. Jesus alone is the end and the goal. And so, it's not just... Knowing good theology. It's not just attending church. It's not just being a good person. It's not growing up in church and going to youth group and even attending Christian schools. It's not enough to know who Jesus is or even to do what Jesus said. You need to know him, gnosko, personally. In other words, Jesus has to be your BFF. It's pretty simple. From there, your life and true life will be found. Let's pray. Jesus, most of us are looking for wisdom and advice, for moral guidance and discernment. But you call us to something that is far deeper and far more meaningful and also far more challenging, to know you personally, to enjoy you relationally, to walk with you daily. Give us faith and desire, and a willingness to turn aside, to enter the gate, to build our house on you. In whose name we pray, amen. Mm Oh, yes.